Each July, we participate with the church in Denver, about 12 churches here in the city, and we teach on the same topic for the whole month of July. And this is just a way that we participate in the unity of the church here in Denver. We really think when God looks at a city like Denver, he sees just one church, all those who are following him. So in that spirit, we teach on the same topic every July. Well, this July, some of the pastors decided we would teach together on the Psalms of Asaph. So like a month ago, we get together for the planning meeting for this series here in July, and there's like a dozen pastors around the table, and everybody's like, who's Asaph? (laughs) So if you were thinking that, you are not alone. Uh, Psalms is a book in the Bible, was the prayer book of Jesus, the song book of Israel, and many of the Psalms were written by David, King David, but some of them were written by Asaph. Psalm 50 and then Psalm 78 through 88 are accredited to Asaph. Either he wrote them or they were written in his honor. Uh, so who is this? Who's Asaph? Well, in Second Chronicles, we learn that Asaph played an instrument in leading the people in song. And then later, Asaph was the leader of worship, like the Charlie Dodrill of the... <laughs> Israelites at that time. And later, the descendants of Asaph are mentioned. So there are about, uh, well, 13 psalms accredited to Asaph. And today we're going to look at one of those, Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. And in doing that, we're going to talk about three things. Spirituality, three women, and the body of Christ. Psalm 50 starts out this way. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, from Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. When it comes to spirituality, we're all looking for God to shine forth. And spirituality is kind of a buzzword today. Like you walk into any bookstore and you see a huge section dedicated to spirituality. That was not the case like 30 years ago. But it's very popular today to be spiritual. There's a huge interest in spirituality. And before we get around to talking about the specifics of a Christian spirituality, can we just talk about spirituality in general for a minute? Everyone, everywhere, has a spirituality. Everyone, everywhere, is getting a spiritual formation. You don't have to even believe in God, or go to church, or read the Bible, or ascribe to any beliefs whatsoever to have a spirituality. Everybody, everywhere, has one. Everyone, everywhere, is being formed spiritually. The question is, What is forming you? What is forming you? And a healthy spirituality, just generally speaking, is a set of practices, habits, disciplines that we commit ourselves to to manage the energies, the eros inside of each of us, the fire inside of us, the energies inside of us. When it comes to the energy that is inside each one of us, Sometimes we don't have enough energy in life. We don't, we lose the zest for life. We can't get out of bed in the morning. 
Sometimes it goes all the way and we call it depression. Lost the zest for life, lost the, the energy for living. And on the other hand, the other end of the spectrum, sometimes all the energy inside of us leads us to a lust for so much life that we unravel, that we become disintegrated and unglued. So on one hand, a healthy spirituality gives us a reason to get out of bed in the morning, gives us a zest for life, because sometimes we don't have enough energy in our lives. In this sense, you could say the opposite of a spiritual person is not a person who does not believe in God or lives like a pagan. The opposite of a spiritual person in that regard is somebody who's lost the zest for life, lost the reason to get out of bed in the morning, maybe just laying on the couch, taking in a steady stream of sitcoms, intravenously taking in wine and beer with no limit. On the other hand, a healthy spirituality, it's the t it has this other task. It helps us manage the reality of too much energy in our lives. Like when we want to take all of life in and then we spin out of control in obsessions and addictions. So in this sense, a healthy spirituality grounds us. It is the glue that holds us together when the energy inside of us is threatening to unravel us. It keeps us integrated so we don't fall apart. And the opposite of a spiritual person in that regard is somebody who has lost their identity. They don't know who they are anymore. So a healthy spirituality kind of has two jobs, two tasks. One, gets us out of bed in the morning. Two, helps us fall asleep at night. Like a healthy soul is both energized and glued together, grounded, integrated. In his book, A Holy Longing, Ronald Rollheiser says this, we can define spirituality this way. Spirituality is about what we do with the fire inside of us about how we channel our eros, those energies. And how we channel the fire within either leads to greater integration or disintegration in our lives. How you channel the fire, the energies inside of you, the disciplines, the habits, the practices that you embrace in your everyday life, that is your spirituality. So just generally speaking, everybody has one. Everybody's got a fire inside. Everybody is adopting practices, disciplines, habits to channel that fire, that energy inside, and those practices and those habits, that's your spirituality. That's why everybody's getting a spiritual formation. Everyone has a spirituality. The question is just, what is forming you? And either it's leading to greater integration in your body, in your mind, in your spirit, or less integration. Either it's leading, those practices, those habits are either leading you to greater integration with yourself and God and others and the world, or greater disintegration 
In Psalm 50, God responds to the people. So it starts out by the people saying to God, you are mighty God, from the rising of the sun, you are great, shine forth your light, God. That's what the people say at the start of the psalm. And then God responds to these people. And this is what God says. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, God says, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. See, what is happening here in this psalm is the people start out by saying, God, you are mighty. And then God says to the people, I don't need your sacrifices. You have the wrong mindset. When you put these sacrifices, these disciplines and practices and sacrifices before me, you have the wrong mindset about it altogether. It would kind of be like God walking into Platte Park Church right now and being like, I appreciate that you sing these songs and you seek this spirituality in your life and you set aside this hour, but you have the wrong mindset. What was the wrong mindset? In this psalm, we see the people had a view of God that made God dependent on them. They were acting as if they owned everything and they were doing God a favor by giving him these sacrifices. So they slipped into this religious idea that the gifts were somehow meeting God's needs and that God would be at a loss without them. But as we just sang, God is an endless ocean, a bottomless sea. It's not like God has this little trough and then we bring our little cups of water and pour it in and there is God. And that is how the people were approaching God bringing these sacrifices. God is like, I don't need your sacrifices. I own all the animals. Cattle on a thousand hill. It's all mine. So they are insulting God in their worship by coming with the mindset that they would now give to God some of their possessions, some of their time. The point of the psalm is God owns everything. And there are no exceptions. Humans own nothing. When we talk about ownership, we're really talking about trusteeship, stewardship. We own nothing. God owns everything. And everything that we say we own is really something that has just been entrusted to our care. So that car you drive belongs to God. That house you live in belongs to God. Those kids you're raising belong to God. Everything belongs to God. All of it. Even your very next breath. It belongs to God. So the psalm is saying, from the birds of the air to the bugs in the field, the beast in the forest, the cattle on a thousand hills, all of it is God. All of it belongs to God. And he can do with it as he pleases. So to illustrate this further, 
consider three women. I borrow this illustration from the book I referenced earlier, Holy Longing. Consider three women, Mother Teresa, Janis Joplin, Princess Diana. Let's start with Mother Teresa. Most people would not consider Mother Teresa a very erotic woman, right? We consider her a spiritual woman, but she was a very erotic woman, not in the Freudian sense, that the narrow way we typically talk about that, but she had a fiery energy inside of her. You watch any documentary about her life, you read anything, you talk to anyone who ever met her, she was a human bulldozer. She had a rare and passionate, fiery energy inside of her. Tremendous eros in her life. She might have looked frail and meek, but she had a ton of passion and a ton of drive. And at the same time, she was a very disciplined woman, dedicated to God and the poor. Everyone considers Mother Teresa a saint. Why is that? A saint is someone who can channel powerful energy, power, powerful eros, in a creative and life-giving way. Soren Kierkegaard one time defined a saint as someone who can will the one thing. And Mother Teresa did that. She willed the one thing, God and the poor. She had a powerful energy, but it was a disciplined one. Her energy was in total dedication to God and the poor. And that was her signature. It was her spirituality. It was the mark of her life. It is why we call her a saint. It made her who she was. Now consider Janis Joplin for a minute. Most people, oh, she, she's a, the artist who tragically died from an overdose of life at age 27, rock and roll star. Very few would consider Janis Joplin a spiritual woman. Maybe erotic, but not spiritual. But she was a very spiritual woman. Most people would say she's polar opposite of Mother Teresa. But actually, in just raw makeup, there are some similarities. She also was an exceptional woman with a fire inside and a passion and a drive and a tremendous amount of energy inside of her. But unlike Mother Teresa, Janis Joplin could not will the one thing. She willed many things. Her great energy went out in all directions, and eventually that created an excess and a tiredness that led to her early death. But all of her practices and habits and disciplines for creativity and for performance and for drugs and sex and alcohol, all of that was her spirituality. 
it was how she channeled all the energy inside of her. So she was a very spiritual woman. That was her signature. And the end result was not, in her case, a healthy integration, but rather a total dissipation, a total disintegration, until she tragically and finally broke apart. Like the glue that normally holds a human life together was just gone. And so a healthy spirituality generally, oh, just big picture, does two tasks. It's life, and there's a glue. There's a grounding. Now, most of us, uh, we are, we're, we're like Mother Teresa in that we want to will God and others, and we do will God and others, but we also will many other things, don't we? Like we want to be a saint, but we want to experience all the things and the experiences of sinners. We want to be innocent and pure, but we also want to experience everything in life. Like we want to serve others and have a simple life, but we also want all the comforts of this world. We want the depth that comes from silence and solitude. But we also have a fair amount of FOMO going on. We don't want to miss out on anything. And no wonder this life is so tiring on our souls. We are tired and overextended at a soul level from willing to many things. I want to be deep, but I don't want to miss out. I want to build a life of prayer, but I don't want to miss my favorite shows. So maybe Janis Joplin is like an extreme example, like most people in this room do not die of, you know, at age 27 from a lack of rest. Maybe most of us are a little bit more like Princess Diana, like half Mother Teresa, half Janis Joplin, because Princess Diana, of course, you know, most photographed woman ever, spent millions of dollars on clothes, was on yachts in the Mediterranean with playboys, ate at every fine restaurant, lived the Vanity Fair life. And at the same time, she gave to the poor. She became friends with Mother Teresa. Even before becoming friends with Mother Teresa, Princess Diana directed a lot of energy towards efforts to help the poor. So for Princess Diana, her spirituality is both a commitment to the poor and a Vanity Fair kind of life. Most of us relate with that. Most of us understand that. She didn't go the full route of Mother Teresa or the full route of Janice Joplin. And she chose some things that left her more integrated and other things that left her less integrated. At the close of Psalm 50, God says these words to the people. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me, and he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. 
What God is saying here is, you know, earlier he said, I don't need your sacrifices. These disciplines, they're not for my benefit, they're for yours. And the way that a person communicates that they live with the understanding that all of it belongs to God in the first place is that the sacrifices, the practices, the disciplines are a thank offering. That honors me, says God. Because that communicates that there's an understanding. All of it, the cattle on a thousand hill, all of it belongs to me to start. So it's not for my benefit, it's for yours. And as we do that, the scriptures say this prepares the way that I may show him salvation. In other words, there is a grace and there is a gift that comes to those who fully commit. That the half-hearted the less than fully committed always leaves us longing. That this prepares the way that God might show us life that is truly life. So we've talked about kind of spirituality in general. What does it mean to embrace specifically a Christian spirituality? And this has totally to do with the body of Christ. I mean, the central mystery in the Christian tradition is the incarnation. And usually when we talk about the incarnation, we have an under-understanding of it. Usually when you talk about the, think of the incarnation, you think of Jesus being born, walking on this earth for 33 years, coming fully God, fully man. What's wrong with that? Isn't it correct? Here's what's wrong with it. It gives us the impression that the incarnation was like a 33-year experiment where God came to earth and then he went back home. The problem is we use the past tense for the incarnation, and that's a dangerous under-understanding of the incarnation, which is the central mystery of Christian spirituality, following God in the way of Jesus. The incarnation, here's the thing, it's still going on. And it is just as real and radical as when Jesus walked in the flesh on this earth, on the dirt roads of Palestine. So when the, when the Bible, when the scriptures talk about the body of Christ, talking about three things. First of all, Jesus in the flesh on this earth. Second, the body of Christ, the Eucharist, communion, the body of Christ broken for you. This sacrament, this ritual that we participate in every week, the body of Christ. And then third, when the Bible talks about the body of Christ, you and I, the community of faith gathered. And so a Christian spirituality commits to the body of Christ, the person of Jesus, the table of communion, and the gathered saints. This is the body of Christ. When we come together and worship, when we sing, when we lament, this is the physical presence of Jesus in the world. Sometimes people are praying, Jesus, show up in my life. God, shine forth in my life. Seeking a spirituality generally 
when God wants to meet you specifically, incarnationally, through someone sitting next to you, through someone in a small group that you join, through someone that you serve alongside in Juarez. This is the physical presence, the incarnational presence of Jesus in the world today. And really, that's the difference between a theist and a follower of Christ, because a theist believes in God. A follower of Christ believes in a God who is incarnate. So a theist believes in a God in heaven, and a follower of Christ believes in a God in heaven who is physically present on earth inside human beings. So if you are going to embrace a Christian spirituality, you must embrace the body of Christ. Person of Jesus. The body of Christ broken for you. And the body of Christ incarnate in the world. Charlie and I were talking this week, and um, it's this picture I have for each of you. Like you have this fire inside of you. God's given it to you. You have energies, passions, and eros. Each of you, and me too, we're like little campfires. We have this fire. And our spiritual practices and disciplines, the habits that you wake up and embrace every day, those are like rocks around the campfire of the life that is you. The fire inside of you, the desires inside of you. God's place there. And the spiritual disciplines, the habits are like the rocks around the campfire. So here's what can happen. You can pile so many rocks on that fire that you put it out. That's called legalism. So many things, the fire's gone. Or you can have no rocks, and that becomes wildfire. That becomes an unraveling. There is no glue. There is no grounding. So as we follow God in the way of Jesus, it's not about admiration for Jesus. It's not even just about imitation of Jesus. It is about the indwelling presence of Jesus and the spiritual disciplines, the practices, those habits that you put. It's like the rocks around the campfire of your life. There's kind of an ancient phrase. It, it, it says, every choice is a renunciation Every time you choose one thing, you're renouncing other things. Like you choose to marry one person, you're saying you're not going to marry the others. You, you, know, you choose to be here this morning, that means you're not going to be somewhere else this morning. You choose to pray, that means you may not gather with that group of friends at that time. Every choice is a renunciation. So my question for you this morning, and as you move into the week ahead, what might God's Spirit be inviting you to choose like a rock. What practice, habit, discipline, what choice might God be asking you to make? And remember, in each choice, there's a renunciation. To move closer to him. To order your day to order your life in such a way that you might move closer to him this week. Let's pray together as we close. 
God, I thank you for the good and true and beautiful fire that is you. And I thank you for the fire and the energies and the passions that you have put in each person gathered in this space. And God, where life is needed, I pray that your spirit would do what only your spirit can do in invigorating the hearts and the lives and the passions of the people present in this space this morning. And where, God, ungluing is happening, where unraveling is taking place, would you help us to see, to choose, and to walk in your good and true paths? Would we not fear, God, of missing out, but rather would you give us that desire that says, I don't care if I miss out on it all as long as I have you. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.